0: Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. Let us now hear the word of God. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we, we say with Samuel so long ago, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. We are your servants here, Father. And we ask that you would help us to take that that posture and have that attitude of a servant looking to the Master to be spoken to and directed. Father, you are our Master in Heaven, and we pray that you would guide us and teach us and direct us through your Word today. We ask your blessing on this time as we consider the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. What is the first thing that comes to mind for you when I say the word, Tradition. Is it a good concept, a good thing that comes to mind? Or is it a bad thing that comes to your mind when I use that particular word? Maybe you think of family traditions which you have practiced for generations. Maybe you think of certain ceremonies and rituals in religion. Tradition can be a good thing. Provided that it is founded upon and rooted in truth and righteousness. Tradition, when done properly and rightly, can help us preserve things in meaningful ways. However, tradition can also be a bad thing. Tradition can set itself up as a rival to the revelation of God himself. Tradition is something that can come to contradict the word of god we come to this next part of the gospel of matthew and this section revolves around tradition and a dispute related to tradition as jesus and his disciples are accused of transgressing of breaking or violating the traditions of the elders we're going to consider this passage in three ways number 1 We're going to talk about the accusation that comes from the scribes and the Pharisees against Jesus and His disciples. They say that they have transgressed the tradition. That's in verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus in His response in verses 3 through 6 will distinguish tradition from commandment. The word of men from the word of God. Then number three, Jesus will bring the discussion here to a close, his discourse to a close, by showing that traditions that are contrary to God's word are vain worship. That's in verses 7 to 9. Now let's set the context for where we are here in the Gospel of Matthew. In our last study, we finished chapter 14. And at the end of chapter 14, we've got a brief story about how Jesus and his disciples... After the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water on the Sea of Galilee, they come into the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of the town or the men of the place, they recognize Jesus, they go and spread the word, and all of the people bring their sick out to Jesus. Because Jesus' reputation has preceded him, he is known as the wonder worker, the miracle worker, the healer, and rightly so. And so all they want, all they ask for, they beg just to be able to touch the hem of his garment the tassel at the bottom of his robe, if you will. And all those who touch that, all those who touch Jesus in that way, in faith, are healed and made perfectly whole. We said that it wasn't the magic in the robe or some kind of magic in the tassel, but it was the power of Jesus Christ that was tapped into by faith on the part of those who reached out to touch Jesus. It also illustrated for us Spiritually, uh, are reaching out to Christ for salvation in faith. We reach out to Jesus, we touch the hem of His garment, so to speak, and receive His salvation from our sins by faith and by faith alone. We now begin a new chapter here in the Gospel of Matthew, and the very first word connects this next section with what came before. Verse 1, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. So Matthew here links this news story with what came before. So Jesus has been in Gennesaret, which is a region in Galilee. And if you remember your Israeli geography, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel at this time. Israel is kind of chopped up into these large regions and had different rulers over them. Galilee is up here in the north. Samaria is here. And then Judea which is where Jerusalem is, is down here in the south. And so that's the geographical setting for where we are here in Matthew 15. This portion of Matthew also brings to the forefront the issues between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. The religious leaders of the people are opposed to Jesus. They're hostile to Jesus. And we're going to see it come to the forefront again here in chapter 15 in a dispute over tradition. All right, let's take the first part of our study here today, Tradition Transgressed. In the first part of our story, the scribes and Pharisees come and challenge Jesus over one of their traditions, and in general, over their tradition. They seek to impose this tradition on Jesus and His disciples, challenging them as to why they do not observe it. Now we've got two groups of people here that come to Jesus, so let's think about these first. Verse 1, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. The first group of people we have here are the scribes, the grammatus. These are the biblical scholars of their day. These were the recognized experts in the law of Moses, if you had a question about the law of Moses, how it was to be interpreted or applied, more often than not, you went to the scribes. The scribes were the ones who were the scholars and teachers of the law of God. For example, remember when Jesus was born, around that time, uh, the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews, Right? And Herod wants to know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Who does he turn to to get the answer to that question? He turns to the scribes. The scribes are the recognized people who would give an answer to a question like that. However, the scribes are called out by Jesus for their external, superficial righteousness. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five twenty. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the who? Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells all those listening to him in the Sermon on the Mount, you better have a righteousness that is greater than theirs. What was he saying? He was saying that these people, the scribes, they have an external, outward, superficial kind of righteousness. They look good on the outside. But they don't have the real thing. They don't have the real righteousness that God requires. Jesus was so different from the scribes. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you see this illustrated. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall do this, but I say to you. And so Jesus teaches with authority. Jesus doesn't come and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says that, therefore, here's how things ought to be. No, what Jesus says is, I say to you, which is a note of authority, right? And so the people listening to Jesus that day recognize that authority and listen to what Matthew says. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the who? The scribes. This very group of people that come to Jesus here in chapter 15. The scribes had no authority in their teaching. Their teaching was based on the rabbis that they followed, but Jesus taught authoritatively. Moreover, the scribes are hostile to Jesus at this point. If you remember back in chapter 9... Jesus healed this paralyzed man that they brought to him. And it's the scribes who accuse him of blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus forgives the man's sins. So this group of people, the scribes, the scholars of their day, the experts, supposedly, in the Old Testament law, here they come, and you know that this is not going to be a a friendly confrontation because Jesus and the scribes are on different sheets of music. They are opposed to one another. Now, the next group that we have here are the Pharisees. Verse 1, then the scribes and Pharisees. How does this group differ from the scribes? Well, the first thing we should say is there's a good deal of overlap. For example, you could be a Pharisee and a scribe, or you could be a scribe and a Pharisee. But to distinguish the two, because not all Pharisees were scribes, or not all scribes were Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious purists of their day. They are the ones who are scrupulous and strict in their supposed observance of the law of God. Now, as we'll see as we go through the story, what they are really concerned with primarily is observing all the traditions of the elders all the ceremonies and rituals and things that had kind of grown up in Jewish life around the law of God, they were scrupulous in observing those things and in calling others to observe them. They were the purists when it came to the traditions of the Jews of this day. They were the strictest of the groups, the religious groups, In the first century, the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 26, They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee, and he says this is the strictest of all the groups in our religion. So I hope that gives you a flavor for who we're dealing with here, and who is coming to Jesus in chapter 15. Now Jesus also exposed the Pharisees for their superficial and external righteousness. We read it a moment ago, Matthew 5:20. The Pharisees were also hostile to Jesus just like the scribes. They were the ones to challenge Jesus about eating with people like Matthew and his friends. Remember that? Remember when Jesus went to Matthew's house? Matthew throws a feast for Jesus and he invites all his disreputable friends. Who is it that criticizes Jesus and his disciples for being involved in that? It's the Pharisees, Matthew 9, 11. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The idea is he shouldn't be doing that. He's defiling himself. He's making himself unclean by associating with bad people. The Pharisees were the ones who accused Jesus of exercising demons by the power of Satan. They said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, Matthew 9. And recently, here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields, right, on the Sabbath day, and the disciples are plucking heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating. And it's the Pharisees who say, They are breaking the law. It's the Pharisees who accuse them of wrongdoing. They say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so there's some background for you of who these people are. And it's important for you to understand that because we're going to have a dispute now. We're going to have a conflict and a controversy between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. And it's no surprise. This controversy, this conflict between Jesus and them has been building and growing and we see more of it here in chapter 15. Next, let's note where they come from. Verse 1, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. They've come a long way. Remember, you got Jerusalem down here in the south, in the region of Judea, then you've got Samaria, and then you've got Galilee. Okay, so The scribes and the Pharisees come from Jerusalem, the capital city, if you will, to visit Jesus and his disciples, and I think we should say to examine them and accuse them. This is like an official delegation from religious headquarters, if you will, and they come to examine Jesus and his disciples, their conduct. Jesus is famous. He's been teaching in an unparalleled way. He's been working miracles. And so word has obviously spread, and now we have an official delegation from Jerusalem coming to Jesus. Now, on top of that, the people of Judea and the people of Galilee did not always view each other positively. Okay? So the people from Jerusalem would see themselves having a particular importance and significance because they're the leaders of the nation, right? It's similar to what we have in North and South, okay? It's not exactly the same, but if that gives you some kind of idea of, you know, Galilee being redneck USA, if you will, backwater Israel where all the hillbillies are, Or something like that. The cultured, sophisticated people of Jerusalem, many of them would have looked down on the people from Galilee. All right, let's now go to the dispute between these groups and Jesus. What is the centerpiece of the dispute? It is tradition. Tradition. Verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress... The tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Okay, let's think about this issue of tradition for a few moments. First of all, the Greek term translated tradition, paradosis. Paradosis. It's used uh, primarily in the Gospels, and it is a source of controversy and dispute between Jesus and people like the scribes and the Pharisees. But here it gets modified by a phrase that comes right after it, and that is the tradition of the what? Of the elders. The elders would be uh, the Jewish rabbis and leaders, the Jewish ancients who had taught certain things about the law, who had applied the law in certain ways. And so you had all this tradition that would have been handed down from generation to generation, much of it oral, but at some point it's codified and written down. It's put into writing. This would be an entire body of religious teaching that is outside of the Old Testament Scriptures, but is supposed to be an interpretation and an application of it. It later, as I said a moment ago, comes to be written down in Jewish documents known as the Mishnah or the Talmud. So that's what we're talking about here. So they're coming to Jesus and they want to know why his disciples are not following, not the Old Testament scriptures, but the traditions of the elders, the teachings of all the rabbis that had been passed down on how the law was to be observed, how the law was to be applied in the life of the people of God. You see Jesus dealing with this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, for example, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said... What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the tradition of the elders. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, etc. So you saw Jesus way back in the Sermon on the Mount dealing with this issue of tradition that had been handed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and it had come to take on this authority such that some Jews saw it as the same, having the same level of authority as the scriptures themselves and even other Jews who saw it as having more authority than the Old Testament scriptures. So that's the centerpiece of the dispute here. What is it they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of doing? They're accusing them of transgressing it. Look at it again, verse 3. Why, or excuse me, verse 2 rather? Why do your disciples transgress? That is to say, break, violate, fail to follow the traditions of the elders. Now, Jesus is going to turn this around in a little bit and show that they're the true transgressors, breakers of the law of God. But this is what they're accusing Jesus' disciples of. But there is a specific tradition that is in view here, and that is a tradition related to the washing of hands. Okay, Verse 2, end of the verse, For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Okay, So we've got, we have a particular tradition that the scribes and the Pharisees are making an accusation based upon. And it deals with the washing of hands. Mark tells us in his account that they had come and they had observed Jesus' disciples and they had observed that they did not wash their hands before they ate. Okay? And so they see this and now they bring this as an accusation to Jesus. Now, nobody leave here today, boys and girls, men and women, nobody leave here today and say, Jesus said, I didn't have to wash my hands anymore, all right? This is not about personal hygiene or cleanliness. Should you wash your hands before you eat? (laughs) Yes, you should. If you want to be healthy and live a somewhat happy life, yes, you should practice good hygiene, wash your hands with soap and water, okay, and do it regularly. That's important. That is not what this is about. This is not about personal hygiene. What is this about? This is about ceremonial and ritual defilement. Okay, So the scribes and the Pharisees say what you have to do prior to eating and maybe even during the meal itself and afterward is you must go through this elaborate hand-washing ritual. And so there are all these rules and regulations that you find in something like the Mishnah, this Jewish tradition that describes the process that must be done in order for you to be considered clean to eat food. For example, the water can't just be here. The water has to reach here. Okay, You've got to wash your hands to the wrist in order to get it clean. And those who were particularly fastidious and scrupulous about it might wash in the middle of the meal or wash after the meal. And over time, this became a sign of one's righteousness. That if you were really concerned with purity, what you would do is follow the traditions of the elders and you would engage in this hand-washing rituals. So that's what we're dealing with here. Now, where did this come from? Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you will find water being used to cleanse ceremonially. For example, the priests, right? Aaron and his sons, they are to wash their bodies in water before they're engaged in their priestly duties. Or you might read about lepers. If they're to be cleansed, they're to wash in water. Uh, You also read in Leviticus about one who has contact with various fluids and other things that would defile you ceremonially, and you were supposed to wash in water. But there is nothing about everyday people engaging in elaborate rituals of hand-washing prior to just eating a meal. Okay, You do have regulations in the Old Testament that are ceremonial and symbolic that deal with ceremonial cleanliness. But you will look in vain for what the scribes and the Pharisees are complaining about here because it's not there. You see, what they did was they took those principles and those concepts in the Old Testament law and they expanded them to all of the people and to everyday things that even though you hadn't touched a dead body or come in contact with something considered unclean according to the law of God, you still had to wash And you still had to engage in this elaborate ritual. But it was something that they had come up with as a way to be clean, ceremonially clean before God. Mark gives us a little more detail here. It says, Mark 7, "...for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash." And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Okay? So this is what the scribes and the Pharisees are accusing Jesus and his disciples about. Now, specifically, they ask in verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? But make no mistake, they're accusing Jesus too. Why? Because Jesus is the master. He's the teacher. And the presumption is, if your disciples are doing it, then you're probably doing it as well, or you're not leading them or teaching them properly. That would be the idea, which is accurate. Now, this isn't exactly a parallel story, but it's similar. Uh, This is Luke 11. And as he spoke, that is Jesus, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. Okay, so here's Jesus in the Pharisee's house, sitting down for a meal. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled. He's astonished at what? That he had not first washed before dinner. So the Pharisee invites him into his home, and he's kind of watching him. Hmm. And what does he notice? Jesus doesn't go through this elaborate hand-washing ritual. Jesus just sits down to eat, and he's flabbergasted. (laughs) How could it be? How could this be that you come to eat and you don't wash like we all do? So I hope that gives you the idea. So the controversy here is about human tradition. It's about those things that had been created by the Jews over time throughout the centuries and they now required them. To disobey them was to disobey God according to them. This Points out and illustrates the power of human tradition. Human tradition is a powerful thing, is it not? You know how powerful human tradition is when you change something at Christmas time. <laughs> right? Do you have particular traditions about holidays? And these things must be followed. If they are not followed, Woe betide you and all like you, A curse be upon you if the tree is not this high or put this in this place or decorated in such and such a way. Amen, Pastor Nick. I know I'm not preaching to myself. We all have traditions, and we tend to hold them very highly, and we tend to get upset when they get violated when people don't follow them. Tradition has a very powerful hold on people. You know people, for example, who are guided by tradition. You ask them, why do you do this or that? Why do you believe this or that? And what's their answer? Well, that's how my daddy believed. That's how my mama did it. That's how her mama did it. That's how my great-grandpappy did it. This is the South. Great-grandpappy did it. Good enough for them, good enough for me, right? Well, guess what? That type of thinking comes in where? Here. It comes into the church. And now we have a hard time distinguishing between our traditions and the Word of God. But we must learn to distinguish between those two things. You see, those things have been confused here with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they have conflated the two. They put the two together. To transgress the tradition of the elders is to sin against God, according to the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus is going to show us that that is not the case. That there is a difference, there is a line between human tradition and divine revelation. We have to make sure we are following divine revelation, the Bible, right? And so you have to examine yourself. You have to examine your life. You have to examine those things you are doing, those things you hold dear. Are they based on mere human tradition or are they firmly rooted and coming from the Word of God, the Bible? Now, with all that being said, it is important to say that tradition, just the word or the concept, is not necessarily bad. Okay? So let me qualify this. In fact, it can be quite the opposite. Remember the Greek term we talked about a minute ago, paradosis, which is translated tradition here. The Apostle Paul uses this to describe the Christian gospel, New Testament revelation. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. One more, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. What is Paul talking about? Paul is not talking about things, all these extra biblical or unbiblical things, these things outside the Bible. He's talking about all these things that we have in the Bible, those things that have been inscripturated and written down for us in the Bible. So sometimes you might hear a Roman Catholic say, ah, see, Paul's talking about tradition there. And what we would say in response to that is Paul is not talking about unwritten tradition that's been handed down through the Roman Catholic Church or the Popes of Rome or something like that. No, the tradition that Paul is speaking of is the Word of God, is the revelation of God, the truth of God handed down from generation to generation and written down in the Bible. So it's important that we distinguish, again, between what's God's Word and what are the traditions of men, and that difference makes all the difference in the world, does it not? that you learn how to say this is human tradition and this is Bible. Now, Jesus will respond in verses 3 through 6 and will draw the picture here for us so we understand things clearly. And this is a battle between human tradition and divine commandment. The first thing Jesus does in his response, we see in verse 3, he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now the scribes and the Pharisees had asked him a question and as Jesus often does, he turns it right back around at them and he has a question for them because there's something much more important than this question about ceremonial defilement and that is the breaking of the actual commandments of God, the breaking of God's law. So Jesus now turns the tables and challenges them with a question of his own. Notice how Jesus turns this around, verse 3. Why do you also transgress? They accused him and his disciples of transgression. Jesus wants to know why you transgress, he says to the scribes and Pharisees. But what Jesus is accusing them of, transgressing, is much more important than what they have accused him and his disciples of. Notice the distinction here. Verse 3, why do you also transgress the what? The commandment of God because of your tradition. Again, we've got tradition versus commandment. You see what Jesus just did? He just took them back to the commandment of God. They've challenged Him about the traditions of the elders, which are the traditions of men, and Jesus says, why are you breaking and violating the command of God? Here is the issue. This is the crux of the matter. The scribes and Pharisees are followers of the traditions, but in doing so, they violate the law of God itself. In fact, it is by means of their traditions that they end up breaking the law of God or the commandment of God. So, this is not a squabble over things that don't matter or over mere opinions. This is a conflict between what men say and what God says. And that's the bottom line, is it not? What does God say? Has he spoken? Yes, he has. Where has he done so? In the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. This is what makes the Bible so very important. Without a divine word, we are subject to things like the traditions of the elders. We're just subject to the whims and opinions, preferences and teachings of men. But with the Bible, we are free. We have glorious freedom from the traditions of men being imposed on us. This is what makes, among other things, the Bible so important. It is the divine revelation. This is how we know the commandment of God from the traditions of men. We go back to the Bible, right? This is why we spend so much time with the Bible here. You say, well, we spent so much time this morning in John, and now here we are in Matthew, and tonight we'll be in Genesis, and on Wednesday we'll be in Habakkuk. And then at other times, we're in all these different places in Scripture. Why are we doing that? Because this is the Word of God. These are not the words of men. God used human authors, yes. But the Scriptures are God-breathed. They are the product of God. Their origin is in God. With the Bible, we can distinguish between the two. Traditions of men and commandment of God and make sure that we are following the one rather than the other. Furthermore, this episode here in Matthew 15 corrects a popular misunderstanding of Jesus and his attitude toward the law of God. Here's the popular way people think about it. And you tell me whether this is true or not. You've got people like the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're really strict. They are trying to follow the law of God in all of its detail, very specifically applying it to every part of their lives. But Jesus comes along and says, you don't need to do all that. Jesus is very lenient. He's very lax about the law. You don't need to follow commandments or do this or that. It's not about rules and regulations. That's the common idea, right? It's a popular idea. You've got the Pharisees and the scribes. They are really you know, following faithfully or trying to be very strict in their obedience to God's law. Whereas Jesus says, ah, no big deal. You don't need to follow the law of God strictly. You don't need to be specific. You don't need to be obedient and detailed. Just love or something like that. Okay? I think that's a fairly common misunderstanding but that's not really the dispute, is it? And this passage helps you see that because Jesus does not respond with, oh, you people and your rules. Don't you know we're not supposed to follow rules? Don't you know commandments are not the way to go? You just need love, man. Jesus does not respond in that way. Look at it again. Verse 3, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? What does he call them to account for? The commandment of God, the law of God. Verse 4, for God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Ah, Jesus cites the law, and he rebukes them for failing to follow it for violating it and teaching others to do the same. End of verse 6. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. The, The issue is not rules or no rules. The issue is whose rules? Whose commandments? Men's or God's? And Jesus says it is God's commandment that must be obeyed and must be followed. What does this tell you about Jesus and the law? It tells you that Jesus did not come to do away with the law and say, hey, folks, you don't need to follow any commandments. You don't need to obey God's rules. Just do as you please. No, Jesus did not come to do that. We have his express teaching here and elsewhere. Matthew 5, for example, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them... He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who said that? Jesus said that. That's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. You are not made right with God through your observance of the law. You can't be a good person by trying to keep God's commandments and save yourself or earn God's salvation. It's impossible. You're not a good person. We're not good people. We're bad people by nature. That's why we sin. That's why we walk contrary to God's commandments. That's why we violate His law. But the good news is, God gives to us His salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and He fulfills the law and obeys the law perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness for us in our place. God requires you to be righteous, and He knows you can't do it. And so he sends his son to do it for you. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus then goes to the cross to suffer and bleed and die to pay the penalty for our violations of God's law so that you are forgiven for all your breaking of the law of God. Then he rises again from the third day and offers to us forgiveness of sin and new life. And now through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven and saved. We no longer stand under the law's condemnation because we were breakers of it. Now Jesus has taken our place and given us His forgiveness and His righteousness. So now what do we have to do with the law? What should we do with the law? We obey it not in order to be saved. We obey it because we are saved. We obey it and follow the commandment, honor your father and your mother and the other commandments. Why? Because we have been rescued from our sin, given new life, and now we follow His commandments out of love for the Lord our God and not to earn some place with Him. No, that place has been given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture reminds us of the stark difference between the words of men and the word of God. The issue is here, the battle is joined with the traditions of men or the commandments of God. And the question for you and for me is, which one are we following? What is it that holds sway over you? Is it your own ideas or the traditions and ideas of your grandparents or family members or whoever, or is it the Bible? Is the Bible directing and guiding your life in all of its detail? That's why God gave it to us. He gave it to us to reveal His salvation and teach us who He is, who we are, and how we are to function and how we are to live. Are you living that way? Is it tradition that holds its power over you? Or is it the Word of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that when we really study it and we think about it, that your Word just illuminates so many things. Oh, Father, if it were not for you giving us the Bible, we would be captive to the traditions of men. But we thank you that you have revealed yourself, you've made yourself known, and you've given us a book, the book, by which our lives are to be governed, by which our lives are to be directed. And we ask, Father, that, that you would help us with this, help us to ensure that we're not just doing things because that's what our parents did or our parents believed, but we're doing things because the Bible teaches these things. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us give us understanding as we study Scripture, as we think about what your word requires of us. We thank you, Lord, that you will give us grace to be obedient and to do those things that that you want us to do in our everyday lives. But we ask, Father, that the Scriptures would have pride of place in our lives and our church, and that we would be able to distinguish between the traditions of men. And the Word of God. Lord, I pray for your people here today, and I ask that you would encourage them and strengthen them. Lord, help them to see these truths and cause this Word to bring forth fruit in their lives in the days ahead. I pray for those who are here today who are not believers, and I ask, Lord, that you would touch their hearts, open their hearts to the gospel, help them to see their sin today and their need of Jesus and the salvation that only He can provide. We thank you, Lord, for all of your blessings today, and we ask that you would be with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you leave today, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.